Hello and welcome to the MadeCast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Miles. I'm Red. And I'm Anthony. This week, Alex sat down with John Paul Dyson from the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. They talked about the museum and its history, its upkeep, and the highlights of the collection. Before we get into that interview, let's start off with some gaming news. Alrighty. So, biggest news that we got... Yep. Sony has bought Bungie for $3.6 billion. I guess like the latest clapback in the conglomeration of Sony and Microsoft's uh, claws on the industry. Uh, Figured something like that would happen in response to all of the Xbox acquisitions that have recently happened. So we shall see what this brings for the future. So what does that mean? What does that mean for Bungie? Possibly a Destiny show, possibly different movies on the horizon, uh, expansion. I mean, essentially now Bungie has access to Sony money or Sony like, and Sony can use their funds to expand on the Bungie properties, potentially new shows like we've seen with the Halo show and maybe get a Destiny show, Destiny movie. We'll see. Uh, Lots of potential for the future with that acquisition, as well as expanding on the existing properties. So maybe more games we'll see in the future. I remember a couple of years ago, um, uh, Bungie said that by 2025, they were committed to releasing at least one game other than Destiny. We're getting close to that deadline, so we might hear something in the next year. That would be pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. That would be exciting to see their their next move in the industry uh, away from Destiny, which has already been a massive hit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of other massive hits, though, Dying Light 2 comes out tomorrow uh, as of recording this. Uh, So keep a lookout. By the time this releases, it will be out. Uh, So keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, As far as other games that are already out... Pokemon Legends Arceus has been the highest reviewed Pokemon game in the past 12 years. Uh, oh, yeah. What were the last two highest rated games? Heart Gold and Soul Silver. That's that's right. Both fantastic Which were, games. Honestly, fantastic games. Yeah. I mean, they were amazingly fun to play. They added just what they needed to do as far as improving on the original story without taking away from it it they improved the look it looked great uh i'm probably going to get my hands on that uh i know you anthony have just picked up a switch and have been playing it uh and you've seemed to be enjoying it right yeah it was the only reason i picked up a switch (laughs) no just kidding (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's a good reason to pick up a switch 
uh, especially the Switch Lite. I mean, as far as far as like Pokemon games going on a mobile thing, I feel like the Switch Lite is like the perfect, perfect system to use it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think one more little bit of fancy news that we have right now: Steam Deck. The dev builds are out in the wild, and people are happy. They just seem to be working, which is really, really cool. Um, I'm excited to see. Uh, I mean, with the reviews, with reviews like this, I'm tempted to pick one up and see if I can bring some Steam games on the go. So maybe we'll see in the future. Get first on journalistic hands-on experience with the Steam Deck. That'll be a good opportunity. Um, and then, uh, we had this one more little piece of news. Uh, the director of Red Notice, uh, is set to work on a D&D TV show. Uh, what is this about? So it's, it's in the early stages of production. It's being headed by, uh, Ross and Marshall Thurber, writer and director. Uh, I watched Red Notice. It was fine. Um, I don't think it was really worth the hype of having those stars. Uh, I don't want to poo-poo something uh, without really knowing too much about it, so I'm going to hold my breath and wait. Uh, mm-hmm. But D&D typically, historically has not had a good track record uh, with uh, adaptations of any kind. Um, yeah... Yeah, so. as- aside from what people make of it in their own homes with their own campaigns, uh, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Uh, mm-hmm. this, this reminds me of the, uh, there's a Dungeons & Dragons uh, cartoon back in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the ones that was, uh, <clears throat> didn't do so hot. <laughs> Maybe this new one will be sort of like, I guess, Game of Thrones-esque, sort of grittier and more mature. Hopefully. Who knows? I mean, we'll see. Maybe maybe it'll be rated TV-14. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. Bring in, a, bring in a little bit of edge to it uh, to show off the D&D universe. But... I think it's about time we wrap up these little news stories because it's time we throw it on over to John, Paul, Dyson, and Alex as we hear a little bit about the Strong National Museum of Play. And we are here with Dr. John Paul Dyson. Thanks for being here, JP. Yeah, my pleasure, Alex. Uh, so I'm not sure if any of our listeners on the West Coast are as familiar with the Rochester uh, so the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, uh, New York. But can you tell us a bit about your institution? Sure. Yeah, we're in Rochester, New York. So that's you know closer to Toronto in some ways in New York City, uh, about six hours from New York. But we have the world's largest play collection, toys, dolls, uh, board games, jigsaw puzzles, and video games. And w- our mission is all about play. We're a large museum, about 285,000 square feet. We get about 600,000 guests pre-pandemic a year (laughs) and um we really got into video games because we were looking at how play was changing and we said we had these amazing collections of these other types of play things going back hundreds of years but what we really also need to be doing is preserving 
video games, their impact on culture, on the way people learn, the way people, they connect with one another. And so in 2006, we began a large initiative to collect history of video games that led to the growth of a collection of more than 60,000 video games and hundreds of thousands of archival materials related to the history of video games, and also the formation of our International Center for the History of Electronic Games and the World Video Game Hall of Fame. So we're really all about collecting the history of video games, preserving that, and then also sharing that with guests through exhibits and both in person and online. Now, how did the Strong get started? What was the initial <laughs> collection? So, and why is it named the Strong, you might ask? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the two answers are tied together. It was the legacy of a woman, um, Margaret Woodbury Strong, who died in 1969. And before she died, she had gotten a charter from the New York State Board of Regents to establish a museum based in her collection. She's a fabulously wealthy woman. Uh, Rochester is a home of Kodak, and her family gave Kodak a lot of their startup money. And they had a family policy of never selling Kodak stock. And so it did quite well through most of the 20th century until a company in Massachusetts called Polaroid, and then eventually Digital came along and really sort of messed up Kodak's fortunes. But she had collected vast amounts of things, filled her, a couple mansions she had, one in Rochester, one in Maine with stuff. And she left this stuff and also a large amount of money to establish a, a museum if people thought it fit to do so. And so they looked at it and said, yeah, we can do a museum here. And so the museum began work in the 1970s. I'm open to the public in 1982, and it was a bit of a rocky go for a while in terms of finding an identity. What sort of museum are you? Her stuff was clustered mostly around toys and dolls, but there's a lot of other stuff, 100,000 buttons like you might wear <laughs> in your clothes, um, or Flow Blue China. Mm-hmm. And the museum acquired other things as well, a lot of furniture. And so their initial mission was to look at the impact of industrialization on everyday American life from 1820 to 1940. And what quickly became apparent after the museum opened in the public in 1982 was that that was not a mission that was going to wow the masses. You know, people were not beating down their, the doors to get to that. And so the museum began a long search for what was its true mission, what was its relevance, and in some ways a return to Margaret Strong's original passion for playthings. And in 2003, we adopted the play mission. We also were home of the National Toy Hall of Fame, for instance, as well. And that really gave us a focus and allowed us to say, okay, we're all about one thing, which is play. And how do we explore play and celebrate play in all its different ways through collections? We're a collections-based museum with more than 600,000 items, but also through exhibits as well. And then, as I said, that eventually led to video games. So the uh, International Center for the History of the Electronic Game undertakes all sorts of preservation stuff and and collecting. I mean, people bring you things. How do you decide what to do and what to save first? That's a great question because one of the challenges for a museum is, especially if you're a collecting museum, is how do you preserve all this stuff? You need to have a place for it, for one thing, especially mm-hmm. now that could be a physical place or it could be a digital place. Do you have, do you, where do you store it? How do you keep track of everything? You need processes in place. And there's always a limit to what you can do on any subject. You can never collect one of every, everything unless it's maybe like one year of run of baseball cards or something like that. But there's always stuff that you, you can't collect. And so we are faced with these decisions all the time about what to take in, what not to take in. And it's a variety of factors. So what's available? Um, That might be someone might have a collection early on. We had almost nothing. And so 
you know, your collection of Atari 2600 games was great because we needed that. But after you have 20 copies of Atari Pac-Man, you think, do you need another copy of Atari Mm Pac-Man? And so sometimes we're in the position of saying no to people. But oftentimes it's about what is the purpose to which you're collecting. And really we have two primary audiences, aside from the general principle of trying to preserve the history. One is a research audience. So we have researchers from around the world who come and use this stuff. And now a lot of materials are available on the internet. So you can play emulated versions of games, for instance. And we're working to digitize things as well. Or there may be a a scanned copy of a magazine. So you may not need to travel, but there may be, for instance, maybe you want to play the original version, not the emulated version, and we'll set up that Commodore 64 for you and let you play for it. So research audience is one is one element, and then the other is a general audience. So whether that's online, but especially in-person exhibits, where you have exhibits that help people who are maybe casual, maybe passionate um, gamers, or just general public who may not even think of themselves as gamers, to understand the history of video games, Uh, how they came about and what their impact is and what's glorious about them. And so we want to collect items that accomplish those purposes. And you, again, you need to think of those consequences. How do you store it? Can we process it? Um, And you might be okay taking duplicates of something, especially when we get into issues of digital preservation, where you may need multiple copies because something may not work. Um, But on the other hand, we have, more than 300 arcade and pinball machines. They're big, bulky things. You don't want endless copies of that centipede game, you know, in there because there's only so much you can you can do in terms of putting them out and storing them, and that's all costly. Mm-hmm. That's true. But actually, talking about the arcade games, I mean, just the arcade games is half of it. Then you have to have all the parts machines. I mean, do you part stuff out or do you get new things? How do you even handle that arcade fleet in a museum setting? So arcades are a special challenge. Uh, luckily, we have a great team. Uh, Mar- Martin Reinhardt, who's our arcade game technician, he's great at fixing these machines. And it's a whole range of different issues that are involved. It could be a monitor issue. It could be a board issue. It could be a control issue. Sometimes they're not parts. Uh, we just, um, for instance, got a Japanese game for which there was no handles anymore or the handles that were came with it were broken and there was um, no handles available. So he actually, in that case, 3D printed new handles uh, for it. So sometimes we might get parts, buying parts off, you know, whoever's selling them, whether it's an eBay or somewhere else. Uh, there's, there are communities of people working on arcade games, as you know, and those are great resources. But we also have to weigh this question of what are we doing with the arcade game? Are we making it available to our general public to play? Uh, 600,000 people a year can be pretty hard on anything, mm-hmm. no matter no matter if they're arcade games which are made to be robust or something else. Or is this object too rare? So you maybe have an old pinball or a copy of Computer Space mm-hmm. that you're not going to set out for use all the time. So we have gradations from things that are available to be set out on the floor at any point to maybe things that are in our restricted collection and may be available only to researchers or only used to take video of of what the play was like and not used on a regular basis. So those are all key decisions that go into determining how you care for an arcade game and what sort of possibilities of play there are for which audiences. So so we, uh, we sort of touched on this topic with Paul Galloway and I wanted to ask you the same thing. Paul 
said the New York MoMA furniture for their new design space, they had to tend towards prison level of furniture, stuff that could be, you know, could survive a riot or explosions or people, you know, kicking things off of the walls. Uh, what kind of uh, attrition rate is there for controllers? And have you learned any sort of secrets to keeping this stuff alive when 600,000 people come through? Well, one of the first things we learned was that an Atari 2600 controller does not last. Mm. Um, so early on, we tried to put, I think it was Pac-Man out, actually. And this is even before we'd really started our video game collecting. And it just does not hold up to you know a, a, an eager 11-year-old. Uh, so... We use a lot of HAP control controllers that are pretty sturdy. Um, our, again, arcade games were meant to be used in public, so they tend to be very durable. And then console controllers are usually pretty interchangeable. So you can either find newer versions of old console control uh, controllers, or you can get the original in enough quantities. But again, we're always making those judgments. Another thing to think about with games when you're in a museum is how accessible is this game to someone who's having a museum experience? Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to sit down and play an eight hour game when you're visiting a museum. Mm-hmm. You are there probably with someone else who's probably pulling you on to go to the next thing. And so there are things you learn about which sort of games do well and which ones don't. I remember early on, I wanted to, I put Zork in an exhibit. Mm-hmm. I grew up playing text-based adventures. I love Zork and I thought this would be great. And I realized that, guests were just befuddled by it they had no idea what to do you know <laughs> what's this typing things mm-hmm. and so sometimes we'll still do that we'll, we'll still stretch people a little bit we have king's quest out right now in our women in games exhibit hmm. and that's um and that gets some use but it doesn't get as much use as centipede which is just uh you know 10 feet or so down down the row so it's one of those things where you're always assessing durability as you ask and also accessibility in terms of does this make sense for people Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely jibes with what we found. The Nintendo first-party games consistently do well with the public, like your Mario's, your, your Mario Kart's, your Smash Brothers. Those, for some reason, those games are just infinitely accessible. And then you know your PC games, it's very difficult to show them in a in a, a museum environment. We tried Ultima Three. I mean, just forget it. You'd have to stay there for hours. <laughs> and, and some games age better than others too. Some game may have been great because it was cutting edge at the time, and now it just looks creaky. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas other games may have this sort of play that really is is timeless. People still love playing Tetris mm-hmm. uh, two hundred years from now, I suspect, mm-hmm. and. Um, but maybe not a game that was at the moment it came out was really the, the hot thing. There are all those factors that go into determining what is successful and your experience speaks to that perfectly, I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, over the years with all these uh, wonderful things in the collection, what are some of your favorite highlights of your collection over there? I love collecting things that show how games were made, uh, the people who made them. And that extends actually even to the business records. So we have things like, for instance, the notebooks Will Wright used to uh, when he was creating The Sims and SimCity 2000 and, and, and Spore. But those sort of things chart the design process. But then also you see business records where you see correspondence figuring out, okay, how do I make this game sell from companies like Broderbund and Sierra, those sort of things. Those really speak to me because, in part, because they they get at the craft aspect of creating games. I think so. That's an important thing, and that's something that is sometimes a little bit harder to translate to people because one of the challenges with, with video games is that, unlike say books or movies, 
the general public doesn't know the names behind these. Mm-hmm. There's no author usually in the front page. I mean, uh, Electronic Arts tried to sort of do that with some of their early games, but and there's and you're not having in most cases real people as, as visible actors the way that we can relate to some, someone on a screen in a movie or on a television show. And so there's this challenge to personalize video games. And so that's where it's interesting to try to sort of to get people to see there are these geniuses. And, and one of the things I've loved about working with the video game industry these you know, past 15 years is there are just so many smart people creative people in the industry and so how can we celebrate what they're doing and really bring the general public to see that you know of, of course we have our our own favorites sometimes you know personally they're the ones that we grew up with <laughs> i just uh wrote an article um, about something called data man which was an electronic toy that i had in the 1970s from texas instrument who did mm-hmm. toys like the little professor and speak and spell mm-hmm. and um they're really pioneering ones and so you get this personal thing it's like okay I'm going to use my job as an excuse to write about this thing I loved. <laughs> but then there's also these one-offs that are sort of curious. One of my favorites is a mechanical version of Pong called Mar- Marx's TV Tennis, which is actually has an arm that go- with a light bulb at the end that bounces back and forth before this little plastic simulated television. And you can just see the disappointment on a child's face when they get this instead of getting the real Pong. And so, so those things, there are things like that that um, make uh, make us laugh. So there are those elements. And then there are really sort of important foundational documents like the Sumerian game, which is the first educational uh, game of the 1960s computer game. Mm. And the papers of Mabel Addis who worked on that, the educator who, who worked on that. Or sometimes... There are things that are deeply moving. So there was a um, in the Her Interactive collection that we have that came from the creators of Nancy Drew. There was a, a girl who was dying of cancer and she um, became part of the Make-A-Wish Foundation and she loved the Nancy Drew game. So she wanted to meet the Her Interactive team and to, to sort of be part of a game. And she unfortunately died before she got a chance to actually visit the studios. So some of the team met with her, I think, in the hospital. But they also then worked her into a game, into a Nancy Drew game. And we have a thank you note from her parents uh, to the team. And so just seeing that, how important this game was to her and what power and meaning and emotion it had for her and for her family helps us get a sense of why video games are so special to those of us who grew up playing them. And so when you find an artifact like that that sort of tells them that story, I think that's really powerful. Incredibly powerful. I mean, these relics of, of lives that have been dedicated to these things on both sides, the creation and the playing, uh, you know, have meaning. Right, exactly. And, and, and capturing the meaning for players is, is much harder to do. That's probably the hardest thing to do. You know, how do you do that? But that's what we're always looking for ways, whether it's handwritten notes in, um, um, in an old software package, some notes they're taking while they're playing the game, or something that's online that we may want to download because it captures something about, you know, that someone was um, just saying something about how important the game was to them. And that opens up this whole realm of how you preserve born digital stuff, which is a whole nother topic as well, something hmm. we've been getting into. Yeah, but I wanted to give you time to talk about what's going on at The Strong in terms of uh, your current projects. Uh, you got any books in the work? What's going on? Yeah, we had, we did have a book come out a couple of years ago from HarperCollins called um, A History of Video Games and 64 Objects. So that's available on Amazon. And it, it 
riffs off items in our collection and really dives into their history and how they tell us about the large history of video games. We're doing a big expansion at the museum. So we're adding about uh, 90,000 square feet uh, to the museum and a couple of major exhibits really de devoted to video games. You know, one uh, called High Score that features a lot of the rare artifacts we have, prototypes of old games, uh, some of these documentary records of how games were made. Um, and it will be a new home for our World Video Game Hall of Fame. And also an exhibit called Level Up, where you will get a wristband, you'll get an RFID enabled wristband, and you will go through and play in an environment in which video games come alive. You earn achievements, they're linked to your avatar as you're doing physical things. And so that's going to be really fun and a really groundbreaking thing for a museum to do. So that's really key. And of course, we're always collecting too. And that's really what. I would encourage people to hear this, if they have materials, whether they were developers or in the business or just people who had games themselves, to reach out to us. Um, at, you can go to the, the uh, museumofplay.org and contact us and say, hey, I have this. Are you interested? And, and we maybe we, we may already have it or, or maybe outside our realm. But we love having those conversations with people because we really want to look, even as we're doing all these things around exhibits and, and publishing, to make sure that we're continuing to build a collection because that's really a resource that we want to be there 100 years from now. Mm, that's very important. And actually, you guys are, seem to be in a really good position for that because I know the Computer History Museum literally has a page that says, we want this, 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 and this, and don't even bother to talk to us unless you have that. You know what I mean? There's, there's a lot more open area for you to take things in, I guess, than in some of the other technical museum areas. Yeah. Well, again, you always run up against space constraints. Every place is probably where they are. Um, but part of the 90,000 square feet that we're adding to the museum is additional storage space. Mm -hmm. We have these giant vaults that I always say are a little bit like, if you remember the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark when you top uh, bring man. the ark. Ar yeah, exactly. We have, we have top men working on this. <laughs> and so we're, we're building another one of these and um, really looking to see how can we continue to preserve these and expanding our archives as well to preserve these materials. So, so yes, please contact us um, if you have materials. I always tell people if they have papers or actual design documents to contact you guys, because you're the, the best place to send that stuff. I feel, I feel like, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah. You've definitely made those introductions in the past. We appreciate it. Well, I mean, and the Smithsonian is wonderful and, you know, library of Congress is wonderful, but you guys are like dedicated to this and this is going to get attention if it comes to you guys. Generally, I feel attention and also use too, because what happens is people who are doing, say, studying this area, if you're an academic or something like that, you want to go to a place if you're going to do research where you can um, see lots of stuff at one time rather than going to 20 different places. And so that definitely is, is a key, having that scale of different amounts of materials. Mm -hmm. And plus, you get snowed into the museum for weeks on end with, uh, what do you got, 18 inches outside right now, you said? Uh, we're working our way towards 18 inches, so we <laughs> should get there. So, yeah, Rochester in winter, this, the museum's a great place to be. <laughs> it sounds like it. Well, JP, thank you very much for being here today, and uh, stay warm up there. Thank you, Alex. Really appreciate the opportunity. And we're back. Whew. Thank you very much, uh Mr. Dyson for joining us, uh, and, uh, speaking, uh, about your museum. Uh, seems like we share, all, uh, as museums, we share a lot of similar goals and, uh, there is a lot that we can take away and improve upon our museum by learning from what you have, you've done and what you have to offer. So thank you very much. Uh, we look forward to, I would love to come visit out and maybe we can potentially make that happen to 
cross museum exchange or something. That would be a really cool experience. Museum bonding. Exactly. You know, I mean, that's one thing that I'm uh, working with a bunch of museums, having like co-exhibits and everything. It's mm-hmm. nice to have. It's not it's not really a competitive space where it's like, no, we're going to be the one video game museum. We're going to have all the people. No, it's not, it's not about a competition based thing. It's about sharing the experiences that many people grew up with and still enjoying and showcasing the, where the showcasing the history of every game that has come before what we are currently experiencing. Uh, and, showcasing what we're currently playing later in the future because we are still playing a part of that history right now. Absolutely. But what we're playing right now currently is a different story. So what has everyone been playing right now? Anthony, give us a little bit on Arceus. Yeah. What's up? Um, yes, we do need to hear a little bit more about that. <laughs> um... Arceus, where do I begin with this? Um, okay, so you guys are familiar with sort of like the main structure of Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Except now it's uh, third person. So um, there are no more random encounters from, you know, walking in grass or anything. Every Pokemon out in the world Yay. is catchable and um, interactable. Now, the cool thing with this game is you can get attacked by pokemon i Hmm. think that's the the coolest feature of it unless you throw your own pokemon to sort of battle it there so like you as a trainer can get attacked yes you have the option to Mm. dodge these attacks though with you have a sort of roll um uh, ability and so, um, as long as you dodge and, and, and it's all time-based, so you have to really time your dodge. Some Pokemon charge their attacks and you kind of have to like wait till the last minute to dodge. Otherwise you'll get hit. Um, if you faint from those attacks, you'll, um, end up back at the main village and you'll lose a lot of your items, which you don't want because items play a huge mm-hmm. part in, in this game. Um, you craft Pokeballs, uh, you're crafting a lot of items. Um, when you battle, you can move around, you can kind of circle the entire battle, um, which I think is hmm. really cool. Kind of blew my mind. Like, whoa, I can actually move now. Um, oh, that's cool. The battling is still the same though. Yeah. It's still the, the turn-based turn base and it's they really made it super easy so like all the moves you can select it'll tell you if they're effective or non-effective hmm. so you no longer have to guess like or memorize all the different sort of uh, weaknesses and, sh- and strengths okay I, that, that feels like a that feels like a little bit interesting to me but I'll, I'll, I'll reserve my opinions until i've actually checked it out because i i can't really give my own opinion on something that i haven't tried for myself yet that does sound a bit interesting because i I just i mean it kind of feels like what they did with pokemon snap and made it a little bit handholdy but again if this is like a prototype for what's to come with pokemon i am very excited this i feel like this is a very good start yeah Mm -hmm. i i went in with like low expectations and 
I'm I'm pretty satisfied, so I I recommend giving the game a whirl. Well, that's cool. That's that's high praise for this. But I think it's about time we wrap up this episode of the Maidcast. Thank you very much for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the made afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. This week's episode was brought to you in part by Patreon donors Justin Klinchuch and Kev Zettler. Thanks so much for your support. Until next time, I'm Red. I'm Anthony. And I'm Miles. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Later, gamers. Later, gamers. <laughs>